Welcome. This podcast is brought to you by The Seat and Shine. We are your hosts today. I am Lisa. And I am Bridget. In each episode, we are looking forward to sharing stories about individuals who have ties to Elizabeth and or her mission. And today, we're actually going to be discussing another interesting individual who was also a sister of charity of St. Joseph, and she was here in Emmitsburg, knew Mother Seton, worked alongside of her. Uh, I can't wait to explore more about her. Yeah, she has a very interesting life, I feel, and she eventually becomes Mother Superior of the Sisters of Charity of Cincinnati. Um, But her story actually begins um, in Ireland, Sligo, Ireland. She was born on December 27th of 1787. Oh, wow. That's kind of interesting because in our last podcast about Harriet Seaton, she was also born on the same day in the same year. Right. And we also um, found out that when Elizabeth Ann Seaton's husband died, it was also on the same day of Harriet Seaton. Yes. So now it's on the same day. Well, Margaret shares that same day with Elizabeth in the realm of significance, meaning right. someone's right. celebrating the death and she tries to be celebrating a birthday. Right, right. So, yeah, so now we see several people having big events on December 27th in yeah. Elizabeth's world, in her realm. Um, Margaret's family decides to move to the United States when she's about six years old, and they land in Norfolk, Virginia. Um, Within a short time, a couple of years after they arrive, her father, John, and her brother, Peter, um, both die in 1795, probably um, from yellow fever. About one-fifth of the city's population was um, wiped out that year because of yellow fever. Margaret was about eight years old. Um, and Margaret's mother, Bridget Farrell, decides to move um, to Baltimore. So she picks up Margaret, and they move to a brand-new city um, and to start making a life for themselves. Um, What's interesting is we don't really know what Bridget did for a living, um, but she did believe in education. Both of Margaret's parents strongly believed in education. Um, They spoke French fluently. They spoke French at home, taught it to their children. They could write in both um, English and French, um, the children as well. And um, Margaret became known for her superior intellect and her variety of accomplishments while she was in school. It's kind of interesting because, again, um, this is another individual that has a parallel to the same kind of upbringing that Elizabeth Ann Seaton had. Um, again, the loss of one parent in the family living in a bustling um, society yes. and yeah. getting the education that really would have cost some sort of financial commitment yeah. to yes. and um, with Bridget not working kind of makes you wonder like well how did she get all that but that's great because you know here's two very intelligent women that right. will come to largely contribute to society right um, correct wow. um Margaret ends up going to Madame Lacombe's Academy for Girls which is a private school where the wealthiest are sending their daughters um so we know that she got a very good education she loved being in school. Um, And again, because of her formal education, it really sets a path for her future and her 
her rights and the direction she's going. Yes. And that's how she even met her husband. Yeah, it's, you know, one of those things that um, it kind of suited her well to have a good education. Um, She won't realize that until later, of course, because shortly after she's finished school, she meets Lucas George. Um, He had newly arrived from New York. He had retained a position as professor of the classics at St. Mary's College. Um, Bridget and Margaret lived near the college. Um, He is said to be a man that was a highly cultivated gentleman of great nobility of character and charming personality. And it was said that she, along with being so intelligent, was beautiful of face, form, and character. Wow. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because, again, you don't really understand the dynamics of how Margaret had really met her husband other than that somehow he went from New York to Baltimore and they kind of run into each other. The same thing right. like Elizabeth with her husband, William McGee. They ran in separate social circles, but somehow they met. Right. And right. again, these are like really nice love stories almost in a way. Because yes. back in their time, it's usually the family kind of arranged who they their daughter will marry because they want to ensure um, security and stability right in the status of the family yeah and we I mean we think that they were involved with some pretty high society people um, knowing what we know of Bridget Farrell she probably could have arranged it um, <laughs> well, of course they were like they're like perfect they were perfect match <laughs> yeah, yeah they of were course. perfect match <laughs> and um, after a short courtship they are married on December 24th of 1807 Um, They're married by Father DeBorg, who was also um, very important to Elizabeth at the same time. Um, He is, you know, getting her to come to Baltimore and then eventually will be very helpful in getting the sisterhood started. Again, it's such a small world and it's such, um, it's just so interesting to see how certain individuals come into play of others' life. And really yeah. having a pivotal role in this, which we'll explore here soon. I think I'm right. jumping ahead. Yeah. But I think I, when, yeah. I, when, I, when you hear about, like, Father DeBorg and some of the other priests and the, the role they took place in someone's life within the Catholic Church, it's just kind of interesting of how it gets all entwined together. So, right. But, yeah, I am, right. I am jumping ahead <laughs> because, you know, Margaret yeah. did get married. Right. And, and now she's, you know, 20? Yeah, so yeah. she got married a few days shy of her 20th birthday. Um, their happiness, unfortunately, would be very short-lived. Within the first six months of their marriage, um, Lucas is um, challenged to a wrestling match with one of his students, a seminarian. Um, something goes wrong, and he is left an invalid um, and lives only about five months before he dies in November. Um what makes this even more tragic is that Margaret is expecting their first child. Um, she has a daughter a few weeks after his death um, in late November, and the baby dies right after the first of the year in January of 1809. So in just a year, she you know, is married, um, expecting, loses her husband, loses her child. Oh um, and so I think both... Both Margaret and Bridget's hopes were kind of dashed at this point. Um, I think Bridget was looking forward to being a grandmother and kind of expanding that family. Um, And, of course, Margaret to be so young and to have lost a husband. So once again, they're, like, living in mourning, um, and they have to start over. They have to start their life anew. Um, 
It's during this time that Margaret meets Elizabeth. Elizabeth has continued her charity work with the Widows Society that she had started in New York. Um, and so she met Margaret after her husband died um, and was there to help her through the grieving process, I think. And that's how they became so close. Um, like you said earlier, they were very similar in a lot of ways. So I can imagine that they had um, a very close friendship instantly. Wow. It just, again, it just, like, I don't have that experience, but I can only imagine, you know, what a timing it was for Margaret to meet Elizabeth, who has gone through similar situations year prior, minus losing a child, but her own children or her daughters are very, are ill, you know, so she sees Right. She's always Elizabeth is always worried about the health of her children. You right. know that's always was her number one. Right, complaint. and and she hasn't lost a child herself yet at this point, Elizabeth. But she certainly understands yeah. the death of a child, um, having siblings and family members die, um, and she's there to help Margaret. Um, but Elizabeth is moving. She's moving to Emmitsburg, right. and so they're moving um, here, Emmitsburg, in June. And Margaret and Elizabeth continue to correspond and they continue to write. And I think it's interesting. There's one um, story about Margaret, um, John David, Father John David, who was a superior of Mother Seton's. um, He prefers Sister Rose White as Mother Superior. And so um, there's some rumors that Mother Seton's going to be replaced. And there's a story that Margaret is at a dinner party Um, with some of the priests and she starts to hear some talk of Emmitsburg and the sisterhood. And so she leans back in her chair really far to be able to overhear this conversation. And then it is said that she goes home and writes Elizabeth everything that she heard. Um, We don't know what she wrote. Um, (laughs) And I'm not sure how Elizabeth would have felt about hearing um, gossip rumors, Um, but it it shows you the lengths that Margaret was willing to go because that would not have been the way that a lady would have presented herself. But I think even though we don't know what exactly transpired in the letter or the correspondence back between the two, I think it really shows how much they value their relationship with each other and that Margaret really sees the good of Elizabeth Ann Seton's work because like you said, she didn't come with her in 1809 and was in the first group of the Sister of Charity. This is this is years later, you know, a couple years later, right. where she's hearing these things, and she and Margaret kind of takes that natural instinct of wanting to protect and support Elizabeth Ann Seton. Yeah, and so I, I know what's going yeah, on. And I think that she truly believed that Elizabeth was the right person to be in charge of this sisterhood in particular because of their mission to educate. And she's going to bat for her friend. You know, yeah. she wants her to to continue being mother. Now, Father DeBorg is still friends with Margaret, and he encourages her to come to Emmitsburg um, and become a sister. And she she does that, and she she brings her mother along. So she arrives here um, on February second of eighteen twelve. Um, she's to be a sister, and her mother is to be a boarder. And I think it's so great that Elizabeth is like 
sure, your mom can come, you know, she can stay. Well, that was one of the stipulations that Elizabeth Ann Seaton had even for her own family. You know, it was something that she's like, I need my children with me. I have to take care of my children. So I guess you would say it was a stipulation in founding the Sister of Charity of St. Joseph with that her children still has to be with her. If you think in a sense of what cloistered nuns were to do, they're, they're never married they don't have children or family. They really leave a very private, prayerful life. So right. this is a very different take of women religious. Yeah, and I think this really shapes Margaret's thinking, mm-hmm. you know, that she's allowed to bring her mother, who she's been so close with for so many years. I mean, at this point, um, you know, Margaret is 24. Her mother is 47. Wow. Um, you know, her father died 16 years ago. So, um I mean, Bridget was only 30, 31 when her husband and son die. Um, and, and it was just the two of them, you know, in yeah. it together. And so I think Margaret really appreciates that her mother can come. And I think it does shape her um, commitment to the sisterhood and what it stands for. Yeah. Um, so when Bridget and Margaret arrive, um, the Constitution had just recently been approved by Archbishop Carroll. And so the first novitiate is about to begin. And so Margaret is among the first 17 to step into that. And they officially become Sisters of Charity on July 19th of 1813. So even though Margaret really wasn't the first group of women to come to Emmitsburg with Elizabeth, Deaton is considered kind of founding the Sister of Charity St. Joseph when they moved in the stone farmhouse on July 31st, 1809. But she really was among the first that took the vow, that went right. through the novitiate process, took the vow as a Sister of Charity St. Joseph under ratified rules that right. were established in 1812. Right. And these rules were, again, um, what Mother Seton had translated and kind of, I don't want to say edited, but really evolved it to fit the American women religious order. And it makes sense for that in the society that of the United States. So, right, um, right. so yeah, it's sort of like she is still among the first of the Sisters of Charity of St. Joseph. And yeah. It's just amazing because and, as we start getting into it, more of her life is going to unfold in her vocation. Right. And you can see how how she was in 1812 doesn't really change. Mm-hmm. Um, so her skills as a leader, as an administrator, are immediately recognized. Um, she serves as treasurer for six years, the first six years from 1813 to 1819. She teaches at the school. She's a bookkeeper. Um, she's teaching French and penmanship. Um, but in addition, she takes on the role of record keeper, yeah. which she does that on her own. And she decides to keep a list of all the sisters that join, their age, their year of entrance, their background information. Um, she thinks this is really important. She calls it her treasury book. Um, and she writes on the flyleaf of one of the books that she um, really hopes this continues, that this is her express wish. And she also keeps a daily journal of the Diary of St. Joseph about the happenings at the Academy. Um, I think it's because she thought this is history. This needs to be written down. Um, We need to continue this. And I'm very curious now. We know that in the road to Elizabeth Seton canonization to sainthood, they really were dependent on the writings of Elizabeth Seton. I'm very curious now if her, if Margaret's 
work, her writing, had also led to the contribution. I mean, certainly reveals what's going on in the community yeah, and I the mean, good that yeah. they were doing if she was keeping track of everything. Yeah, it's definitely um, another set of eyes. And yeah. she was one of those um, people that wanted to write everything down. Yeah, that's amazing. So it just it just so much has happened in such a really short period of time. And right. but I do want to take a moment just to comment about Bridget, you know, Margaret's right. mother. Yeah. Um it makes sense for her to come because, you know, again, she was widow. Bridget uh, Margaret is all that Bridget has. So right. she it made sense that she would travel with her. But what was really interesting is the amount of courage that Bridget had to have in order to travel and keep embracing like new situations in her life. Because she's 27 years old. She's not no young spring chicken anymore. Right. And especially in 18, you know, 1810, 1820. I mean, that was considered pretty old. Um, But, you know, she goes from Ireland to Virginia to to Baltimore. Um, She goes to big cities and she's not afraid. Yeah. You know, and, you know, she loses her husband and child and then she swoops up her other child and moves to Baltimore. I mean, I, I don't think I would do that today. No. You know, so. I mean, we definitely have to explore um, Bridget a little bit further in another podcast because there was something that just really, well, Sister Judy Mass, who's the archivist of Sister Charities of Cincinnati, had um, research on Bridget, Sister yes. Bridget, and she had made a comment that this is a woman of buoyant spirit, that she's open to what the world has to offer. She is stimulated to the life, you know, from city to country, and even the church life in a Catholic community at such a, uh, you know, an older age, for right. what was considered back then. Right. Um, but she grew in her spirituality, so I, I can't wait until we speak to her a little bit more, because I heard that she also kind of bring uh, joy in joy. it. Because she yeah. wasn't called yeah. just Sister Bridget. Right. So. Which, by the way, as you've alluded to, she does become a sister. Oh, that's she's, right. <laughs> she's just not a boarder. She does become a sister, which is another beautiful thing about Mother Seton. You know, here's this woman that's 47 who has shown that she really wants to become a sister and Mother's okay with it. Um, but she does become very endearing to the sisters and students. Um, Mother Seton says she makes us laugh until we cry. So she did bring a lot of joy, like you said, and she's given the nickname of Uh, Ma Farrell. Yeah. Um, Well, we'll have to for her another time. So we should get (laughs) back to Margaret. So, But they are together and they're doing really quite well in the community here with Elizabeth um, and just kind of flourishing in their roles in the community. Right. And and that continues. Um, In 1817, we have a little bit of a hiccup where um, Bishop Connolly of New York wants to establish a sister of charity there and he has zeroed in on Margaret. He wants her to be the superior there. And um, this is the second mission that came before Elizabeth Ann Seton, a second request. So the first right. one was in 1814 in Philadelphia, right. of which um, Elizabeth has sent out some sisters there that included Sister Rose White. Correct. Now yeah. it's 1817. She right. received a second request to go to New York, and right. they really are zeroing in on the skills that, that Margaret has Presents, to offer. Yeah, so, yeah. and yeah. Father Dubois, who was superior for the sisters at the time, he just writes a letter. I, I really love this. He said, Your Lordship asked for Sister Margaret to open your asylum. 
Were you undertaking a high-toned grammar school, we might consider the giving her up, though it would be a loss to the academy. We shall send you Sister Rose White. (laughs) So he kind of just puts a stop to it. You know, if you're just looking for someone to oversee orphans, Sister Rose White. Yeah. You know. um, I think that just speaks. I didn't mean to chuckle at that. It's just, um, it just how like abrupt like hmm, yeah nice try but we're gonna send you sister rose i, I right. think in a way it's not um a snide towards sister rose at all but it just speaks the volume of the reputation that margaret has established herself within right. the community and the school yeah and they're really trying to have a, a really strong reputation here at the academy um they want it to be known that this is a school that takes education seriously um so she does not go, and she stays stay. here. Um, and then a few years later, she gets a little bit of a shock. She decides to go to the seminary at Mount St. Mary's, um, about two miles from the mother house in Emmitsburg, and a new priest is on the altar. And when he turns around, Margaret immediately recognizes him. It's Father Zappel. He's been recently ordained. He's um, been stationed at the Mount to teach French. And she recognizes him as the man who wrestled with her husband that eventually led to his death. And so um, she doesn't really say anything. Um, The only thing she says is a quick comment of no words can describe, you know, how I felt at that moment. Sister Rose White observes that a torrent of overpowering emotion flooded her soul. So she keeps it close to her heart, which we see with Margaret, I think, all the way through well, it's been how long? It's been over a decade. Yes. Since yeah. she been yeah. since she lost her husband yeah. and she's been widowed. Right. Um, you know, you're kind of wondering if it's especially if it is an accident, but there's no it's not always expected that you can I don't want to say get over it, but right. yeah, she worked through her grief, obviously, but it was really a pivotal time in her life because it was a very early marriage. She was right. on the verge of having a child and her life was totally turned upside down by yeah. this man that right. she now sees over a decade later. Right. Um, it's definitely a mix of emotions, I think. I mean, what do you say? I mean, it's not like you're unhappy with your life now. You think about what could have been. Um, you have a decision like so many of us face sometimes where you can be angry and hold on to it or you can have forgiveness. Yeah. You know, and and I think she had to sit with it for a while. And, yeah. You know, and or think maybe, about it. Or maybe she really just kind of had to mourn for a split second in a way of, wow, my life is totally different. Right. You know, Right. This is so, what it was supposed to be. This is where I am now. But I don't think she completely lost her demeanor because she no. continues on with her work. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, but it's just an interesting thing, I think, to her personality. She doesn't, you know, heavily cry. She doesn't scream. She doesn't get angry. Um yeah, it does appear that kind she of lets is it be. very private. And right. She just, just lets moves it be. on. Um So as you said, by this time, missions are in Philadelphia and New York, um, but Sister Fanny Jordan is now sick. So we're about 18, 19. Um, Okay, so she's another sister that's in Philadelphia Philadelphia. doing a work with, and perhaps was one of the first that went back in 1814. Right. Right. Okay. Right. So 
Mother Seton needs to bring her home. So she brings her home. She brings um, Sister Rose White from New York to, to Philadelphia. Um, and leave the whole of running New York. New York. So, so this is where Margaret goes to New York. Okay. And she's appointed director there. Um, she's there um, 40 years of her traveling around and opening schools and being a director and a teacher. Now she does come back to Emmitsburg off and on, but um, this is what she's to do. And she even states, my disposition is to go and come as superior see fit. So she's okay with that. Um, Well, I think it makes sense because, you know, maybe the hesitancy hesitancy early on about sending Sister Margaret to New York was because they didn't know how it would shake out. You know, there's still a lot of anti-Catholicism up there. They Mm -hmm. just didn't know. So I think that it makes sense to hold off on sending her early on to to see how well Rose White does. And Sister Rose White does very well. So that now it's time, okay, let's get another player in, a strong player, to help establish the the women religious work in New York City because we'll find out here soon what actually that means later on. Right. So when Margaret leaves Emmitsburg, she says goodbye to Elizabeth for the last time. Um, Mother Seton will die shortly thereafter. Um, But she, Mother Seton, sends Margaret with a letter and she gives her a few pieces of advice. Um, One, she says, take care of Margaret exactly as you would take care of EAS, Elizabeth Ann Seton. And she's obviously telling Margaret, take care of yourself the way you take care of me, which I think shows their relationship. They're they're sisters in every meaning of the way. Um, She continues, remember all the little things I told you in this corner about kindness to strangers in the true spirit. And she ends with, you have so much to do for our Lord. May he bless you as my heart and soul blesses you. So, I mean, it just, again, it just shows how, what a wonderful person Elizabeth Seton is, um, that she really takes care to people and makes room in her heart and shows right. compassion and looks out for them too. And I'm, I'm very curious that you share that. Is Did Elizabeth know that that was going to be Margaret's the, um, the last, last time. time that they I mean, see each other perhaps, interact? Because as, as you know, those last couple of years of Elizabeth's life were pretty up and down. And she was feeling like she knew she wasn't going to live many more years. So probably, but also we see it over and over again that um, Elizabeth just seemed to know what to say, what advice to give, where to place people in the academy and the school. Um, She just knew people so well. She really, truly was a mother um, in so many ways. And it's just reconfirmed every time we read one of these sister stories. Yeah, and it's not even just the sisters. Like we see that in with the with her relationship with the students too, which again will be another podcast. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it just again it just a great testimony to who Elizabeth was and what she meant to people and how people will take her words and to cherish it yeah. and keep it with them. Because yes. I'm pretty sure it's Sister Margaret, if that was our last correspondent, I don't think she got rid of that letter anytime soon. Yeah. Obviously, if we know what she said. <laughs> I agree. Um, so when Elizabeth um, was dying, um, she made her um, 
suggestions known, let's say, to Father Brute. And she wanted Sister Rose White to come back to be the Mother Superior, and she wanted Margaret to come back to be the director of the academy. And so that did happen. And Margaret's able to come back here a few months after Mother Seton passes away, and she's in charge of the academy for the next three years. So Margaret's next assignment is to open a free school in Frederick, Maryland. It's about 25 miles from here, but it takes her and a second sister all day to arrive at their destination. It is December 23rd of 1824. Um, they arrive to a two-room, sparsely furnished dwelling that's to be their home and the school, and which opens shortly after the new year. Um, Margaret's there for the next nine years. Now, just real quick, um, I didn't read this part. So is this the same school that became the Visitation, Visitation Academy, Academy that yes. was run by sisters. Okay. Yes. I mean, and obviously it was smaller then, <laughs> right. know, but it eventually, yes, it's the same school that eventually became the Visitation. And, and the Visitation, unfortunately, just closed down a couple years ago um, due yeah. to low enrollment. Oh, wow. Yeah, correct. And they did not have a problem with enrollment. It <laughs> filled up very, very quickly um, at the time. Um, Father John McElroy is the pastor of St. John's Parish, which is right next door to it. He's their um, immediate supervisor. He eventually goes on to found Boston College. Um, Margaret and John have a very close um, friendship um, that they continue throughout their life. From Frederick, Margaret is sent to Richmond, where she again is um, asked to open a school. So this is really where she experiences some anti-Catholic um, bigotry. She experienced some of it in Frederick, but it is really intense there. Um, and she actually says, never in any period of my life have I felt so completely isolated and a stranger far from friends and home. Wow. So I think that's saying a lot considering her travels. Mm -hmm. um, like you were saying earlier, New York had some issues with, anti-Catholicism, and yet she's finding Richmond a much harder place to live. I, I'm very curious if when Elizabeth was alive, did she ever share uh, her hardship in Catholicism when she was still in New York? I mean, I'm just curious yeah, if I, she ever shared that I because if Margaret here years later is finding herself in a very similar situation that Elizabeth in, I'm wondering if perhaps, you know, Margaret grew, yeah, I, you know, yeah. grew some strength out of, well, Elizabeth got through this. I can get through this. Yeah. I mean, for that reason, she may have. But also Elizabeth um, wasn't one to talk negatively about anyone. So um, she may not have. Mm -hmm. um, and some of the people that we're talking about were her friends before she became Catholic. Um, but it's interesting with Margaret because she's still writing journals and you know, interspersed are phrases such as God is all, looking to God alone. Um, her attitude of trust is really exemplified um, in her Richmond experiences. Um, she writes, God is my father. Let him do with me what he pleases. All is the same to me since he will not forsake me. So she credits Elizabeth really in the early sisters for um, teaching her to serve and trust God. And we really see that there. Yeah, she really um, does credit them. Yeah, and so um, by 1837, Margaret's almost 50 years old at this point, she's elected treasurer again of the community. 
Okay, and so she's back in Emmitsburg now. And so. again, in December, okay. she's heading back to Emmitsburg. Okay. December okay. seems to be the, the month for her to travel. Um, so she she's again, done a lot. And yeah. It's like he's already doing a lot. Right, and she's, oh. again, she's in Emmitsburg for another four years. Um, and it's during this period that she picks up the treasure books again and continues to complete those. She completes her own experiences in the Frederick Journal and the Richmond Journal, and she's also beginning to keep um, like scrapbooks. She's beginning to collect poems and newspaper clippings and and sketches and drawings and all kinds of things. Um, Basically, know. like a commonplace book. Correct. Um, yeah, similar to what Elizabeth grew up doing. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, if you think about it, there wasn't. Um, really people didn't have books at their home. And so when people would come across something they found inspiring or wanted to remember, they would write it down. Um, and, and also during this time, we see the one cent newspaper come about and people were overwhelmed with the information. Wow. Being able to get one newspaper a day um, overwhelmed them to the point that they felt like I need to cut everything out and save it. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> when you think about the amount of information that we are overwhelmed with today, they were overwhelmed by one newspaper. Uh, I think it's probably a good thing they are not living today time <laughs> with social media. <laughs> I know. It's, it's interesting. Um, Louise May Alcott wrote that the habit of reading with a pair of scissors in my hand has stood me in great steed for much of my literary work. So she's saying when she's reading the newspaper um, she has scissors in hand, so she's clipping and cutting um, just like anyone else for those inspirational ideas and, and quotes and poems that she may use in her, her writing, her own writing. Um, I'm one to do that. I clip and save and what purpose, who knows, but um, yeah. I think that's where we really see this uh, scrapbook movement come about. Mm -hmm. And she compiles three scrapbooks full wow. of information from the 1840s to 1868. Um, which is the year that she died. Which is the year she passes. Yeah. So um, a lot of it is handwritten copied material. But And what's interesting is there is poems in the first book um, commemorating Elizabeth Seton and her own mother. So she writes poetry oh. about them, which I think is really beautiful. It's so they meant a lot to her. Um, during the summer of 1841, Margaret is sent to Boston to head up a school there. Um, she arrives there um, really, I mean, she's 54 years old, and she arrives there to uh, be in charge of 400 children and more pouring into the city because of um, immigration. Immigrants are swelling the city, um, and so they're just taking in more and more students. Wow. Um, and she's there for the next four years. So four years seems to be the term that she's there. And then her next assignment in 1845 is to go to Cincinnati. So she arrives in Cincinnati, the queen city of the West, um, to take charge of St. Peter's Orphan Asylum and School. Wow, she has quite the stanima, um, you know, from mission after mission. Right. It's right. just amazing our the work, the passion right. that Margaret is demonstrating all because she believed Elizabeth Sanstein. 
Right. I mean, from hearing the the rumors or the gossip at right. a dinner right. party in yeah. Baltimore, this is yeah. where she's at now. Like and she, you know, she arrives there with just six sisters and over two hundred children that are not only being educated, but they're being cared for. They're orphans, mm-hmm. and so. Um, there were a lot of children during this time, and they wanted to make sure they were all educated. Wow. Um, so Margaret is is focused on her missions for sure. She um, she really, like you said, really cares about getting education and making sure these children are taken care of. It's during this time that she's in Cincinnati that her mother passes away. Oh wow! So um, Bridget dies in 1847. She dies here in Emmitsburg. Um, and again, it, it's not like it is today. There were no phones to say, hey, your mom died. Yeah. Um, she had to wait for a letter to arrive. And so she did not make the trip back to Emmitsburg. There wasn't that immediate funeral that we have today. Um, they would have certainly buried her, but it wouldn't have been, let's wait for Margaret to get here. Yeah, um, but I love the quote or the excerpt that you found in about the death of Bridget. You said that the death of her saintly mother, while it was a severe trial to affectionate human nature, brought heaven more close to dear sister Margaret's heart and made future whispers of duty more easily to be hearkened. I mean, that is just, again, I think just hearing that and her finding solace with that in light of her mother's death, but it kind of drifts me back to, again, how much of Elizabeth almost influenced that in a way, because yeah. it's really speaking toward knowing what your purpose is in life and where you're going next, and that is heaven. And she, Sister Margaret, looked for that too, and still right. held a responsibility here right. on earth. And I think Elizabeth did that, you know, as much as Elizabeth herself would say, you know, I look to heaven, I can't wait to be heaven, and be um, joined again with her husband and her children, which she hoped that also made it to heaven. Um, but she took on the responsibility here on earth and she didn't let her grief stop her from that. And I think Margaret right. found the same thing. Yeah. I mean, and she is very similar in Elizabeth that she doesn't allow herself to have much time to grieve when she got the letter announcing her mother's passing. Um, it just said she took breakfast in her room to have a little bit of time to herself and then it was okay back to work kind of thing. And I think she got that from Elizabeth and the, the look to heaven, the promise of heaven. Yeah. Um, Let's, let's keep moving forward. We have work to be done here. Um, It's several years after this, that Margaret's life really starts to change. Um, I think there's a dynamic that really transformed the, entire um, formation of the women religious in the United States and actually kind of strengthening them to be a much larger organization carrying out the charism of not just Elizabeth Ann Seton, but two other individuals from 200 years prior um, St. Vincent de Paul and St. Uh, Louis. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, sorry. Then, um, so just a little snippet, um, back in the 1840s under the third elected superior, Mother um, Xavier Clark, 
there are some, well, it turns out there are some correspondences going between the priest, the Sulpicians, mm-hmm. and the Vincentian. And Xavier is very well aware of it. Yeah. Um, but she, they keep it under wrap because right. they don't know how it's all going to shake out. Because this is something that happened well back in Elizabethan time, prior to her founding the Sister mm-hmm. of St. Joseph, where the there was an uh, initiative of wanting the French daughters to come right. over through the United States, right. the daughters of charity in Paris, France. Right. Which we will get to. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> I, am I jumping ahead? A little bit. Oh, okay. Um, I apologize. So there is... It's just so fascinating. Yeah. I really um, I really like this kind of time period because it just really speaks, again, volume to why we're here today right. in our work. Right, <laughs> right. Um, there is some, um, you know, there's... There's a story to each side, yeah. I guess, to say. Um, and so we're going to try to talk about Margaret's side, I think. Um, Father Deloitte begins preparation for the American Sisters of Charity to become members of the French Daughters of Charity. So, yeah. And so that kind of, to Margaret, she feels like this was sprung on her. Mm-hmm. And in March of 1850, uh, Margaret told Bishop Purcell, who was the bishop in Cincinnati, that she and the others had received word that their superiors are in Emmitsburg, that their vows were to be transferred to the French religious community. They were instructed to pronounce new vows or be cast out of religious life. To Margaret, this violated her most basic commitment to the mission of Mother Seton. She really felt like this was a change from what Mother Seton wanted. And she was prepared to challenge the authority of the superiors, and she refuses to take the new vows. Yeah, and it's also a really interesting dynamic, and um, because Elizabeth kind of had that similar attitude, I guess, when mm-hmm. when once again, when the early um, talks about trying to bring the French daughters here to the United States, Elizabeth really trying to took charge and be like, no, I we can do this. I can do that. You know, she really studied the rules and she ratified them that this, mm-hmm. again, right. better right. for the community. So it makes sense that Margaret is very much on from being from the beginning, being supportive of what Elizabeth Nancy and wanting to stay true to that. Um, right. Even though, you know, again, she couldn't foresee where it goes in the future. And it's a, so it is a quite interesting dynamic. Right. Right. So they appoint Vincentian. Um, Father Maller was appointed the priest superior of the sisters in the United States. So just a side note, wherever there are daughters, there are Vincentian priests. That is kind of the deal that was made between St. Vincent and St. Louise, that there would always be a priest, a Vincentian priest nearby that could take care of their sacraments. So they were ensured to have mass and confession. Well, the and then that makes sense because that's what the Vincentian was designed to do. Correct. Where the Sulpician, they weren't designed to do that. Correct. And they right. were trying to right. support for as long as they could. Right. It just, again, wasn't how it was designed. So they needed the support right. that the Vincentian can upheld. Right. So he's hearing of Sister Margaret's concern. Um, yet, of course, he doesn't agree with Sister Margaret. Um, and in a correspondence to his um, superior in France, he repeatedly blames Margaret for being at the bottom of the questioning and the agitation. So, he, yeah, he's not not happy um, at all. Um, Margaret and some of the other sisters on the Cincinnati mission, after much 
agonizing and soul-searching and discernment expressed their reservations about this change to their bishop. They felt strongly that this was not the vision of Elizabeth Seton and that they wanted to remain the American community. Um, There's to be a retreat in September of 1851 in Emmitsburg. And um, right before this, um, Margaret receives a letter stating that they need a sister servant in Cincinnati, a French Daughters of Charity sister servant in Cincinnati. And they say to her, being well informed of your charity, good conduct and experience in what concerns the service of the poor and sick, um, in observation of our rules, we appoint you to this position. So she should have been happy. Yeah. <laughs> she should have been happy, but she is not. And I think this is really um, a crossroad for her because this is kind of a really nice honor that she is going to turn down, mm-hmm. you know, or she wants to turn down. Um, they, to her, are not getting it. And so she heads to Emmitsburg. And not for the retreat and not to accept the sister servant role, but to plead her case as Mm -hmm. to why this is all wrong. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, She states her views to the council, the mother house here in Emmitsburg, um, before the members, all the objections that she believes that Mother Seton had to the union of the daughters of France. She's thinking, well, if I if I present to them that Mother Seton never wanted this, then how could they possibly go along with it? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think it was that she disagreed with the Daughters of Charity. No, no. Um, yeah, I think she just she just felt that this was a change from what um, Mother Seton wanted. And to her, when Mother Seton died, she asked for two things. She asked Father Brute to um, tell the sisters that the two things that she asked of them is that they stay united and that they keep the rule. Mm-hmm. To Margaret, this was not either one of those. Right. And so it was a break of trust. Yeah, and that's understandable. But it, again, um, we can we know what the outcome goes, right. and you kind of have to be grateful that these situations are occurring because again, it was yes, it's not here in Amherstburg entirely, but it really gave an opportunity of growth to Elizabeth Ann Seton's legacy, even if it's not down to the T. So it's kind of unfortunate that. Um, I really don't think, you know, it's unfortunate that Sister Margaret and all the sisters that saw the change over from Elizabeth's community, as they coined it, to the daughters, that they didn't really see the good that really came out in the long run. Right. I mean, they couldn't couldn't see that. And I think for Margaret, Elizabeth was family, you know, and she didn't have Elizabeth any longer. She didn't have her mother any longer. Um, and I think she was missing that, but she also really believed in the education part of Mother Seton's mission, and she felt that education would not be the primary focus of the daughters. Yeah. Um, and so, it's, it's, it's you know, understandable, right? Yeah, right. So, um, in her retreat notes, she explored um, the depth of the the depth of the meaning of being a sister of charity. Um, she identified the importance of being available to work 
with the poor without reserve and being willing to bear anything for charity. So charity is above every rule, she writes. It is the interior spirit, not the dress, which makes the sister of charity. The love of God and our neighbors, the love of the poor, and the union with each other makes one interior habit. So I think right there, she she supported charity, which mm-hmm. is what the daughters yeah. um, definitely support. Yeah, she went against the charism a right. bit. Right. She all. just really strongly felt that education and yeah. she truly felt that that was not what mother Seton wanted. Yeah. Well, again, you're coming with two women that that was their primary role right. in their vocation. It was surrounded right. by education and it kind of makes sense because when you look at the history of Louise, her primary role in the charism of charity was serving the poor in the sick, you know? So like I, you know, I think she did a little education, but I I, I have to go back and read Louise. But, right. you know, you can, there is two different kinds of roles that's playing right. into charity. Right. And right. you kind of have to respect that. Right. Um, Margaret goes on to say that, um, that she knew the purpose of Archbishop Carroll and Mother Seton and were so loyal a nature that death would be easily compared to the relinquishing of a sacred trust when the honor of God and the salvation of souls did not require it. So that that's kind of heavy. She's basically saying to them, I know what they wanted. I was here with them. Um, and that it would be easy to die and compare to what you're asking me to do here, you know, and break this trust. Um, she presented among the evidence um, a letter that Mother Seton wrote um, Archbishop Carroll in May of 1811. This was the first time when there was um, talk of the daughters joining, which right, you alluded right. to earlier. I do remember that, yes. Um, so Mother Seton writes, what authority would the mother they bring have over our sisters while I am present? How could it be known that they would consent to the different modifications of the rule, which are indispensable if adopted by us? How can they allow me the uncontrolled privilege of a mother of five to my darlings? Or how can I, in conscience or in accordance with the parental heart, give up so sacred a right? She continues, my Anina, having no longer the prospect of leaving me, my duty to her alone would prevent my throwing her in an unprotected state in the hands of a French mother. Even if I had the courage to separate from her, her virtues and exemplary conduct would make it impossible of my will. So Margaret presents this letter as proof that Elizabeth would not have wanted the French rule, but we don't really know what the answers to those questions would have been. True, yeah. Um, And we don't know if they would have had a further conversation. Um, We don't know because it never happened. Mm-hmm. And it would not happen again in Margaret, I mean, in Elizabeth's lifetime. She wouldn't have to make that decision again. So, um, yeah, but Margaret feels strongly that that's proof that Elizabeth did not want this. Elizabeth did not want this when she was a mother of five and the possibility of having to choose between staying in the sisterhood and giving up her children. Of mm-hmm. course, she would not want to make that decision. Mm-hmm. Which is, yeah. again, it goes back to, you know, Elizabeth's work with understanding the daughter's role, but then again, ratifying it to fit more of the American um, Sisters of Charity. And, and and I think Elizabeth felt the need to to kind of preserve that, to protect that way of life for them because right. of right. the makeup that the Sister of Charity St. Joseph 
became, you know, I mean, if it really wasn't for these women and that kind of, I guess, flexibility into how they will serve and the roles that they will assume, you know, I mean, right. it's, it's, yeah, yeah. it's just, it's. But what I, I really um, love about Margaret here is that she knows that other sisters feel differently than she does. She knows that other sisters in Cincinnati feel differently yeah. than she does. So when she makes her way back in October, um, she brings with her the paperwork that every sister must sign in order to stay um, in the community. Mm-hmm. She, instead of doing like a kind of house vote, she gives each sister their own paperwork and is like, make your own decision. Um, and so there are sisters that leave. And when when they sign, because the sisters in Cincinnati were not going to do that, they left. They went back to Emmitsburg. Um, there were some sisters that just left completely and became um, Ursulines or Sisters of Mercy. So um, it's a sad moment, I think, I think for Margaret. And there were about six sisters that stayed there. Um, and, you know, this is October of 1851. They really have no support. I mean, they they don't right, have right. anyone at this point. <laughs> yeah. It's um, like starting all over again. Right. In a way. Right. And so some of the sisters are encouraging um Margaret to kind of say, you know, we want the house. <laughs> we want the house in Emmitsburg. Um, we think we should have it because we want to stay sisters. And well, that makes sense. I mean, it's where it all started. It's the right. Right. Elizabeth and Seton is right there. So yeah, right. it makes sense to want that. Um, but I think I get the impression that Margaret is kind of tired at this point and um, feeling pretty sad. And so she doesn't want to deal with that. She doesn't want to go down that road. And she just wants to continue what Mother Seton has taught her. Mm-hmm. And she wants to bring that forward to new sisters. And so she just kind of says that God could give much more and greater things with boundless trust in his goodness. And so she just tells the sisters, trust God. Yeah. He'll figure this out for us. And I think, again, even then, is you can kind of see a little bit right there alongside with her in spirit because Elizabeth was like that a period of time where you know she was tired but but she put her trust in God so just going back into putting her trust in God right and I think she learned that from Elizabeth and 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 just she's holding on so tight to this you know and but she she gets good news in February of 1852 um, so four months later, the Archbishop, Archbishop Purcell, after saying Mass, he turns to the sisters and he says to them, My dear children, after involving the Holy Spirit and giving much time to prayerful deliberation, we have decided that it is God's will for you to remain as you are, mothers, daughter, Mother Seton's daughters of charity. Um, so he's like, yeah. we're going to... Yeah, yeah. We're gonna support you. This is why I'm so excited because you really see the um like the threshold really taking place that Elizabeth has started in Emmitsburg. It is really cementing in communities outside of Emmitsburg. So again, it's sort of like you know, it's like a tree, you know, the branches are now growing regardless of the dynamic that is happening of you know, of this, the American sister joining in one federation with the daughters from 
Paris, France, you know, like right. regardless of that, I, I'm, right. just, it's, I'm just like super excited. I really yeah. wish, I think if Sister Margaret George was alive today, I, I, I think know. that she would be like, okay, maybe we would be a little dramatic <laughs> or maybe we were taking yeah. it too much to heart, but it's just, but it's understandable when you're so passionate about something. Right. And right. that's what you, that's all right. you know. And you think of the hundreds of children that they've educated. Yeah. She did not want that to stop. Yeah. Um, so on March 25th, 1852, which is the Feast of the Annunciation, it is also the anniversary of Mother Seton's First Communion. Margaret and five other sisters kneel before the archbishop to make vows of Sisters of Charity of Cincinnati. <sighs> <laughs> um, now, it's interesting. I love this here. Um, Mother Margaret states that her heart went back 40 years to the first celebration of the feast with Mother Seton. In St. Joseph's Valley, she heard through the struggles there, the cold, the hardship, the want and anxiety. She heard again all the love and treasured words of her friend and spiritual mother, Elizabeth Seton. She saw the smile of her admiration and heard her encouraging tones. Margaret felt at that moment she was right. She was right. This was right. She was doing the right thing. She was thing. doing the right thing. But right. it's just so beautiful that in Elizabeth Ann Seaton's death and her own life, it's like a joining of heaven and earth in right. a way. It's just so beautiful. Right. I um, agree. Oh, and I she's agree. now carrying on the title mother as well. You right. know, just right. It's great. Um, and that's really interesting because, you know, Martha is now 65 years old and is chosen to be the first mother for Cincinnati, the Sister Charity of Cincinnati. Right. Yeah. Um, and Bishop Purcell, um, he becomes their father, their friend, and their spiritual guide. Um, he becomes to Margaret what Father Brute was to Mother Seaton. They really have that close connection. Um, and I think pretty much discuss everything, which we've been kind of seeing. Um, and I, I think that's a very, again, a very interesting dynamic because if you look back into Elizabeth, and where she was in the, within the community with the priest, uh, you know, Father Du Bois was pretty vocal that he had one vision, and Mother Seaton was vocal about her having another vision, right. and they collided. And then Brute came into the picture, and they are now in sync. And Mother Seaton is more in harmony about her work and right. continuing right. to grow to think. So here, Bishop. Purcell comes in and is sort of like the diffuser and the supporter, though, at the same time in um, in helping the, Margaret with the vision that, again, goes back to how she aligns herself up to Elizabeth Hayes-Seaton's vision. So I, I think this is like a really great um, time for Margaret in a way. Uh, being so late in her years. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is. And you can see she's still um, she's still a thinker and she's still working really hard. Um, this has been a, a long journey for them. I mean, really from September of 1849 and now we're in the spring of 1852. It was a long time of um, soul searching and self-examination for these six sisters in particular. Um, I think it took a lot of courage for them to do what they did. Um, and really defining themselves um, with God and within their community and, and deciding how to move forward and be okay yeah. with that. And I mean, within this group, there are, again, just like here in Amherstburg under Mother Seaton's time, these women that worked with her, you know, they really made something, they really contributed to the legacy. And we're going to see that again in Cincinnati with, you know, Mother Margaret now. Right. Like she oh, yeah. herself 
leaves a legacy and we see some strong women coming out of that women religious congregation yes. in Ohio. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so there are many reasons, many reasons why um, the daughters came when they did. Um, St. Catherine Labore had said um, that Mary revealed to her that another order would join with the daughters. And many believe that the Sisters of Charity were the, the order that was meant to join with the daughters. Yeah, well, that's the oil tradition, you know. Right. It's sort of like you're kind of wondering how much of it is a coincidence. And right, because they, they were both yeah. really based on the rule of St. Yeah. Vincent of Paul, so it kind of made sense. Yeah, um, There was also concern, too, um, because the Sisters of Charity of New York had split in the in mid 1840s, um, Archbishop Hughes in New York decided that he wanted to have control of the Sisters of Charity there, and so they split, and and half of them came back to Emmitsburg, half of them stayed um, in New York, and kind of became their own Sisters yeah. of Charity at that point. So there was that fear that that would happen again and again. Yeah, but um, at the same time, if they were still alive today and they saw the fruitation of really the split of that decision and that it is no means a negative, it should not have a negative impact because right. it's just, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. I just think it's just really great. I really wish they were all alive today to be like, oh, yeah. okay, this um, was all for not and we are still upholding Elizabeth. Yes, absolutely. Um, and it's interesting because Margaret just, okay, let's get to work and things really start to grow and they open an orphanage. They even open a Catholic hospital in Cincinnati. Um, a sister that worked with Margaret, she said that Sister Margaret was a good soul, laborious, generous, kind-hearted, a remarkable financier. She taught the highest classes and went out of school engaged in the common drudgery of the house. She rose at three o'clock in the morning to build fires and have the rooms comfortable for the sisters and was perfectly indifferent about her appearance. Her cap was generally on one side and her habit awry. So um, <laughs> much different than I envisioned at first of a teacher that teaches really, you know, high educational classes. Um, but, yeah. but again, her, you know, again, that's just, that is pretty remarkable, you know, that she has uphold this reputation right. all these years and all these different places. And she just became a very successful, successful woman. Right. So the following year in 1853, they have their first official election and she's elected mother, of course. Um, so she's, you know, again, working with her 65 years of her wisdom, experience, enthusiasm is, is driving others, you know, to be attracted to the community. And right. They are they they support her, so the community right. is now rapidly growing. Yeah, I mean they they adore her, but for Margaret, um, I think she still has some sadness. You know, she's getting she's almost seventy, so mm -hmm. she's beginning to start missing. You know, the sisters that that she's lost. Her mother um, is certainly Elizabeth Seton, and she does maintain connections to the early days. The early um, sisters, yes. The, of the sisters and the academy yes. and here in Emmersburg. Yes, so. as, as well as she can, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so she writes a letter to Sister Cecilia, who left the Sisters of Charity shortly after Mother Seton's death and became an right. Ursuline. Um, and she, she writes her, how frequently does memory recall the friends of those first years of religious life, many of whom, nay, nearly all are gone to the silent tomb and their souls where are they? 
May we not hope, my sister, that they are in the sweet company of the saints. So she's she's really, really missing them, you know, um, and thinking a lot about what has passed. And in another letter, she speaks of those early members again, and she says, none remain of the first stones. There is something indefinably sweet in the remembrances of gone by the days, she reminisces, where there was one heart and one soul, and our ever-to-be-lamented mother was the center of all of our happenings. So Again, the, the one heart, one soul really kind of coming back to Elizabeth, Mother right. Sheeton. Right. Yeah, and she, she misses those early days as hard as we hear they were. Um, she wants to be there. Yeah. You know, um, so and I think that's that's really beautiful. You know, she's getting older. She's thinking more about that, probably, as we all do. Um, by the spring and summer of the following year, Bishop Bailey of New Jersey, um, he was Mother Seton's nephew. Mm-hmm. He had been um, a Protestant priest and he became um, sorry, a Protestant minister and became a priest and then a bishop, and then an archbishop. Um, But in 1858, he's a bishop in New Jersey, and he wants to found a Sisters of Charity there. Um, And he wants Sister Margaret to train the sisters. (laughs) Again, (laughs) her reputation precedes her. Right. Um, In fact, there's a story that... um, Elizabeth Boyle, who was the mother superior mm-hmm. in New York, yeah. is like, well, I will train them. And he's like, no, thank you. <laughs> I, I will, I will they go. love Margaret. They love Margaret. I will go to Sister Margaret. And so he sends five sisters to her, to Cincinnati, to be trained the way that his um, aunt, Mother Seton, had trained her sisters. And they're there for about a year. Um, and then they are sent back to New Jersey and um, Archbishop Bailey makes a pitch for Margaret to come to New Jersey. Um, and Archbishop herself just says, no, no, thank oh. you. <laughs> no, thank you. She is not leaving. Um, so. Well, how much of that could be her age, too? I mean, it could be her age. Be like, but what, in the 70s now? Yeah, she's still working just, really oh. hard, um, which we see the next year when they have the election in 1859. She's elected assistant mother. She would think, okay, she gets a little bit of a breather, but she's still treasurer and bookkeeper. And so she oversaw the responsibility of 19 sisters and 350 orphans. So I really hope I have that cinema when I get up in age. I really do. It's funny that that was kind of a step down, you know, (laughs) Um, but um, she's about to approach her jubilee year of being a sister for 50 years. Right. And so she's she's still there at the orphanage um, when that happens in 1862. Um, she's about to celebrate her 50th jubilee. And she does it with um, the whole community, but also Archbishop Purcell. Um, and there's a lovely story that she, you know, 70 years old, she tries to kneel in front of him. And he's like, no, 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 I mean, stand up, you know. Yeah. Um, but he also puts this huge crown on her this golden tiara um, (laughs) that he places on her head um and you know you can just kind of see the love like they just loved her Mm -hmm. and they really wanted her to have this this honor yeah well even at the jubilee they were really kind of honoring her as a devout follower to elizabeth and seaton and pioneer 
within the church as well, you know, right. right? Just like Elizabeth was, Margaret really did pioneer, again, further of the women religious congregations in the United States. Right. Um, and their work. Yeah. yeah. And um, the Catholic Telegraph, a newspaper from that day, um, was there during the Jubilee, and they said um, that Mother Margaret speaks the French language like a Parisian, reads the newspaper, shoots off sparkling banter with the abruptness of a pop gun, and is intimately posted on all the great national topics of the hour. May her intellect remain undimmed for many years to come. You know, it's funny, when I hear, when I hear that, it kind of made me think immediately of her mother again. Yes. You know, like here she's been kind of almost an um, epitome of Elizabeth. Right. But then there's this whole mother there, which again right. I know I don't know why I'm so fascinated with Bridget Bell. <laughs> and we will uh, definitely explore her another time. But yeah, um, yeah. I think um, that, that's just a wonderful celebration. Um, and I and I feel like she can finally relax, like she can finally. This is home. This is going to be my home. Yeah. Um, and and so she's very comfortable with those around her. Well, it's um, interesting because. You know, she, correct me if I'm wrong, but she outlives all of what you would consider the original Sisters of Charity of St. Joseph. She does. Yeah. She does. So, sadly, before her Jubilee year ends, she does have a stroke. Um, she gives up active life, and she is sent to the mother house. And for the next six years, until her death in 1868, she's in an invalid chair, um, however, as one sister recalled during her years of suffering, her gifts of heart and intellect were not permitted to lie dormant, but were used to the instruction of the young, either orally or by writing. Pupils from the academy, seminarians, priests, and of course the sisters visited her um, for counsel. So she, even though she's now an invalid, um, she's not doing her active life, people are visiting her and asking for advice. Um, and, and you're correct. There were three sisters that were able to celebrate their jubilee um, from that original vow group. Um, there was Mother Elizabeth Boyle, who was in New York, Sister Fanny Jordan, and um, Mother Margaret George. And Sister Fanny dies in 1862 and Elizabeth Boyle in 1867. So um, it's almost fitting that Margaret George is the last one to pass away. Yeah, it it just is so I think perfect for her. So she dies um, at the age of eighty. Um, it is said that she died sweetly and calmly, like a child reposed in the arms of a beloved parent. In a letter describing the event, Mother Regina Matting wrote, "We all feel most sensibly her demise, but know our loss is her gain, for she certainly made the most happy exchange." 57 years ago, she gave her young heart to her God and faithfully has that noble heart labored in his holy service. Pray that we, her sorrowing children, may like her be faithful until the end. Which is just so beautiful. Yeah. Um, She always, you know, would refer to that one heart, one soul. And so we just really see that even though she would be distant from here in Emmitsburg, from the original mother house, she still felt strongly that connection to those early sisters, to Mother Seton. Yeah. I mean, what, what did she say? She wrote herself, Distance, nor time, nor any of the accidents of this passing life 
can cause me to forget the friends and sisters of our early days in the valley. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, yeah. So we like to end the podcast with how Elizabeth affected this life. Actually, who would be better to answer that question than a sister of charity of Cincinnati? Yeah, so I think that's a great idea. Um, Bridget and I had a conversation with Sister Judy Metz, a sister of charity from Cincinnati, uh, kind of a Suetonian expert, I would say. Um, so let's hear what she had to say about Sister Margaret and her influence. Yeah, because I have that recording here. So um, tune in for a second while we transition to this recording excerpt. Um, and enjoy. Well, you know, there's a whole um, set of correspondence in the 1840s and 50s that involves uh, Margaret George and Cecilia Conway and Elizabeth Boyle, where they are reminiscing about their early days at Emmitsburg and how close um, of a group they were. And when you think about the fact that there were so few of them and that this, they were living really a very sparse and pioneering kind of endeavor and founding a new community that who knew whether it was going to be, um, you know, successful or not. Uh, so they went through a lot together, um, hardship and sickness and so on. And of course they were drawn together because of their vision and their values. And so, um, and also because it was being spearheaded by someone that they all admired so much and felt very loved by and so they, they did you know for, I mean think back to your early days some of your friends from college or high school or whatever that you probably keep in contact with your whole life and there's a lot of similarities in your values and so on and so you stay together or feel that bond even when you're not together. And I think the fact that she, she felt like um, you know, she had been there from the beginning of the community with Elizabeth Seaton and that she maybe even you could say had a stronger sense of what Elizabeth wanted uh, than some of the people who were making that decision in 1849. Sister Judy um, really just sums up um, that attachment that those early sisters had for each other. Um, and. I would like to add that Margaret, I think, credit Elizabeth for giving her courage and teaching her to be charitable. Elizabeth had created this group of sisters that truly loved each other. One heart, one soul. Yeah, one heart, one soul. Well, thank you everyone for listening yeah. again to this podcast. We really do hope that you enjoyed it learned a lot about Margaret George, and I know that we're mentioning lots and lots of people's names, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, again, we're trying to give you insight to mm -hmm. how the ripple effect of Elizabethan Seton right. had on these right. individuals, and they're all intertwined with each other. Right. Um, even hearing and from Sister Judy today, right. you kind of hear that from right. her. And connected. Yeah. One heart, one soul. One heart, one soul. Thank you. Thank you.